So I owe you all an apology. For the millions who are fans of this podcast or tens of people, whatever, numbers, I missed a scheduled podcast and I'm very, very sorry for that. Without getting into it, simply put, I overestimated my ability to get my shit together. It's unacceptable, unfair to those who are working with me to get their work out there, and unfair to those of you who have been wondering where the hell the next episode was. It's unprofessional, and I promise it won't happen again. Now that that's out of the way, I've got some news. Some exciting things are happening for the Hidden Scribes, and all of you that have supported our journey thus far are entirely responsible for that. Two episodes in. (laughs) Thank you. Some announcements will be forthcoming, including a celebrity co-host, a live event, and much, much more. But today, today is special for me. Instead of our typical format, today is a bonus episode of sorts. Chapter one of a nine-part story based on a screenplay I wrote that only 50 people or so have ever read. It was always part of the plan for this show that I would introduce this story as a supplement to the submitted work that we receive. That hasn't changed. The next episode will be exactly that. A writer who is looking to change their life by becoming, well, a writer. I fall into that category as well. So think of this as my submission. Please click the info button on this episode if you're listening to this via iTunes. You'll find there the list of talented performers who lent their time and passion to making this a reality. They are from all over the country. They are diverse, and they are amazing. Anything you like about this project is due to them, and anything you don't like is entirely my fault. I'm not going to set the story up like we typically do, except to say that there will be blood. Our first season of Scribes is going to be 10 episodes, not including the first three chapters of this story, so they'll be extra, which will launch about every three submission episodes or so. It will continue in season two, with three more chapters and conclude in season three with the final three chapters. I hope you enjoy and as always look forward to feedback. Please hit us up at the hidden scribes at gmail.com or on the Twitter or on Instagram to get our mailing list for early news concerning what we're working on and additional bonus content and comments, suggestions, concerns, and questions as always. And again, thank you. I present to you chapter one of Trinity. This is a dream. He is there, at the edges, floating on smoke, sitting. Intricate tattoos and carved patterns and a mosaic of burned flesh decorate every inch of his bare back. Seated in the lotus, still, peaceful from here. Not on smoke. Stone. Ribbons of throbbing liquid flame coursing around bobbing pockets of charred basalt. Fire and earth. A memento of the celestial. The volcano's belly churning like the heart of a star. This is a dream. He's closer, drifting serenely on his sizzling island. I can't see his face, but I don't need to. I know him. All know him. Hard to breathe. 
Not that it would matter. He and I are beyond breath. Still, we are intimately acquainted with pain. Lungs, collapsing under the weight of heat and ash. A pulsing tide of magma surges him towards me, rotating slowly on crossed knees, cradling upturned palms. Tranquil, but I can see him. His eyes are wide. His body is still barely breathing, but his eyes careen sharply in their sockets. His face slips wildly from one surreal contortion to the next. His eyes. This is a dream. His mouth is tearing at the corners, gaping in a scream or a laugh or... The young monk is barefoot as he barrels through the towering blades of grass. The path he's cleared leads back to a dirt-packed road snaking its way through the ocean of green. At the intersection of the road, in the fear-wrought path, is an overturned carriage. The lights of a small town are distant in the valley below, punctured by columns of dense black smoke. Mutilated bodies lie among the ruined cart. The terrified monk tears through the foliage, clutching a battered satchel. A sound, like a wet growl, is as close as his own fear. He falls down a hill of untended bush, rock, and vine. A dusty ball of tangled limbs rolling violently to a sudden stop. Just beyond the moon's reach, he can make out the rounded stonework of his stupa. Home. It reveals itself like a lighthouse purifying shadows. He limps up to its large wooden doors, rendered in Sinhalese script and Buddhist imagery. The door is always open, but does not yield. The beast, unseen, nears. He plants his weight into the door, speaking in Sinhalese. I go to the Buddha as my refuge. The growl is just close enough to be unmistakable. I go to the Dhamma as my refuge. The beast's breath climbs up his back. Prayer will not open the door. I go to the Sangha as my refuge. I go to the Sangha as my refuge. It rises behind him, locking out the stars. Come on. Just as the door sinks open. The monk tumbles into a moonlit courtyard. A graveyard of chairs, tables, and benches are piled high against the doors he just defeated. He backs up a few pained steps, scanning the darkness. Nothing, except silence, except stillness. He pivots, paralyzed. We see the silhouette of a sacred bodai tree. 
Its branches are creaking underneath the weight of monks hanging from its limbs. The moonlight catches the orange of their robes. The monk considers approaching the tree. He turns towards the temple proper instead, glimpsing a naked figure inside. An old man. Arhat? Arhat? Nothing. No one. The monk fearfully enters the stupa. The sacred walls have been vandalized with vile sexual imagery and esoteric symbols. Painted in crimson, still wet in places, the monk feathers his finger across the wall. Blood. They made their choice. Arhat. No one. Nothing. They chose to crack their necks. Arhat! The monk collects himself and presses deeper into the temple. An ancient room, wide and spherical. High ceilings adorned in Buddhist iconography. An old man sits at its center in a circle of candlelight, painted in patches of other people's blood. Arhat... Someone, something, followed me. Rakshasa. Fair do wit and truth part way. Why, just a man. Did he truly defy temptation? What separated the Dharma from Buddha? As he awakened. The naked old man drinks deeply from a ceramic jug in front of him. Red liquid dribbles from his chin sloppily. The monk retrieves a discarded robe on the floor and drapes it over his master's shoulders. Arhat, we must leave. You were wise to send me away with... The old monk shrugs out of the robe, but grabs the jug as he stands. In the Theravada, we are taught that men and women are equal in all things. Anyone who thinks I am a woman, or a man, or am I anything at all, that is who Mara is fit to address. The old man takes another drink. The monk takes a tentative step forward, taking in his once familiar surroundings. And yet, the sutras describe Mara as a man who summoned his daughters to tempt him. (coughs) Why? Why did we choose a man to tempt our betrayal prince? A demon, a demon, yes, but wearing the skin of a man. Was, was it because even in our enlightenment we couldn't bestow godhood to a woman? He raises the bottle to his lips 
but like him, it is empty. He hurls it at the wall. She's more, more than the cannon could properly convey. Oh. I do not fault myself for being weak. I fault the legend, the lie. He blows out the nimbus of candlelight. I, I thought I conquered something I have never truly experienced. Desire, too small a word. He turns slowly towards his terrified student. She is hunger. The monk looks beyond his master to something alive in the darkness. I go to the Buddha as my refuge. I go to the Dhamma. Two lovely hands cap his shoulders. He shudders. The contours of an angelic young woman's face, shrouded in shadow. She is Harridan. You were so near a long-sought truth. Do not deny yourself this gift. Two man-beasts smelt from the shadows and appear at her side. The damned he fled. Rakshasas. The answer to your prayer. There is no refuge. A full moon bears witness. Chris, an attractive young woman with rich dark skin and haunted eyes, lunges up in her bed, a sweaty tank top clinging to her body, trembling in the wake of panic. She leans backwards into a stretch, her neck arced towards the ceiling, releasing a final calming breath. Fuck. Her only companion is the droning television, babbling absently from her living room. She never turns it off. Among the casualties we now know was Ambassador Elias Abroja, who was once awarded the collar of Miguel Hidalgo. A simple ivory bathroom with a mirrored medicine cabinet pinned on a grid of tile bone porcelain toothbrush holder with one toothbrush on one side of the sink a glass tumbler on the other everything is clean Chris lifts her head dutifully towards her reflection her face dripping with fresh handfuls of cold water she takes in the image of herself with an air of resignation is survived by his son theologian and philanthropist Elegido Abroja who addressed the United Nations she fills the tumbler with water without looking away and flips open the medicine cabinet 
It's a wardrobe of antipsychotics and medications to offset the side effects of antipsychotics. Older bottles on the top with frayed labels. Clubmeropazine, haloperidol, pimazide, trifulopyrazine, and sulpride. My father spent his life cobbling together myth and violence and depravity and found something. Something that is preying on our apathy, our discontentment, and our division. They are coming for us. The lower shelves are arrayed with newer bottles. Amosol Pride. Arapaparazol. Clozapine. Lanzapine. Quitiapine. And Risperidone. She grabs a littlest bottle of Clozapine and shakes two pills into the tumbler. Returns the bottle to the cabinet and snaps the mirror shut. There is a new reflection in the mirror waiting for her. A man clad in chains with a serpent coiled around his neck and a crow on his shoulder. She raises the tumbler, mouthing a soft mantra. staring at the man in the glass with distasteful familiarity. She hurls the pills and water down her throat, closes her eyes. When she opens them, she is alone. Chris sits busily twining her hands in her lap. A dour middle-aged man sits across from her, alternately barking and growling at the air, fidgeting restlessly. The waiting room is small, minimalist, with a dozen chairs, a third of which are occupied. There are magazines festering on tables and dusty, bright, cheery pictures on the wall. Everyone, staff included, are pointedly ignoring him. Except for Chris. She stares at him with an academic's curiosity. Miss Davies. Her doctor's office is stark and cold with sharp lines, much like the doctor herself. Elizabeth Wujic marches in. Chris is standing at a window, taking in the sun. Don't sit, you won't be here long. Blood test came back quicker than usual. There are easier ways to commit suicide. I've never been suicidal. How are you even lucid? Where exactly do I register on the insanity index? When they ask me, and someone will, I'll tell them I made a mistake. You. A mistake? You heard juggling lit sticks of dynamite. This isn't funny. I'm not asking for specific data. I'm just asking how far away I am from needing a collar. Madness in the mirror may be closer than it appears. The visions are getting worse. Visions? You suffer from schizophrenic auditory and visual delusions. I'm quite fluent in the jargon of my illness. The doctor whips a penlight into her hand. Lifting Chris's face brusquely, she drenches her pupils in a sterile stream of light. 
you shouldn't be alive, much less standing here indulging in self-pity. How did you get your hands on this much clozapine? I'm a bartender. Tips are hard. Drugs are easy. Do not come back here. Chris approaches the door, realizing that answers aren't waiting on the other side. The man in my dream with the snake and the crow. You wanted to know how far away you are from a collar. You are by far the most disturbed individual I have ever treated. If the drugs don't churn your brain into milk, then your flimsy psyche is going to tug on your sanity like a brittle rubber band. Sooner is more probable than later. And when it does, snap. A cone of light sweeps back and forth over a man holding a dangling beaded light switch. His black leather jacket is threadbare and his face is lined with regrets. This is Frank. Darkness waxes and wanes as the overhead brass lamp sways above his head. He is alone. I need them. His office is small. A desk. A laptop. A squat floor safe. Wrapped bundles and indistinguishable clutter crowd the baseboards. Roped cloth-bound squares ornament the walls. You can't trust them. He walks towards the safe. The swinging light doesn't quite reach here, but the laptop gives off a soft luminance. I can't trust me. Faith comes at a price. Frank's fingers dance delicately along the edge of the safe dial. A little earlier, an open exercise space lush with warm wood. Chris and Frank are here together, facing each other. He's wearing a white t-shirt and loose pants. In this moment, he does not seem so burdened. Same as always. Chris begins to unbutton her shirt. Frank grins at her with satisfaction and a moment's worth of sadness. What are you scared of? Chris is lying on her back, breathing hard, face streaked in sweat. She opens her legs, knees to her chest, feet overhead. Chris, what do you want? Chris bends into a series of yoga positions. What is stopping you? Chris sitting in the lotus. Madness. The safe swings open. Frank seats himself like a reverent samurai as he looks inside. A half dozen forged passports, two bricks of cash, a Desert Eagle 50 caliber semi-automatic handgun, ammo, a long knife, a small bag of pharmaceuticals, candy. Frank collects the money, then holsters the gun and knife with piety. After a moment of consideration, He collects the drugs. 
You are the only person that I can depend on. He closes the safe and rises in a pivot towards the desk. The computer screen illuminates his face harshly. He is at a crossroads. He bends towards the keyboard and taps out a series of commands. The digital windows collapse, revealing a collage of photos of a man's face attached to patches of data. The face is familiar. We've seen it before. You can't depend on anyone except yourself. He shuts the laptop, plunging the room into pitch. Chris is waiting in the light beyond the door. He walks towards her. Lighter than the heavy moments in his office. Lighter in her presence. The door shuts behind him. There is no going back. She is smiling. Why do you do this? Frank moves in close, clasping her fingers, transferring the pills to her palm and wrapping his hands around hers. I don't have a choice. Is everything okay? Be careful getting home. It's dangerous. She nods, then weaves into the night while he watches. He locks the door behind her. He leans his head into the door, eyes closed gathering himself. Resolute. He turns and walks down the hall to another door. Slides it open. Just a few feet into the room. On the other wall, there's another door. A soft golden glow bleeds between the door and its frame. He waits. Patiently. The glow dims and the door opens. Someone steps forward. Sir. It's a... Next episode offers more questions than answers, and the stakes get much higher. We are all of us here at the beginning. Much, much more to come. Shout out to Lemon Drop Media for doing so much each and every day to support what goes on here. Big ups to Brown Girls Do, whose most recent episode about genealogy was fascinating. Check it out when you get the chance. To the ladies of the Short and Sweet Podcast, we see you. You should too. If you'd like to be featured on the show, let us know. The Hidden Scribes on Twitter, Gmail, Instagram, and the Facebook. And you can reach me personally on Twitter at Mark underscore Million. That is Mark, M-A-R-K underscore M-I-L-L-I-E-N. We out.